0: Hi, I'm Dr. Janice Morrow. Thanks for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things related to mental health. Welcome. Today's guest is Dr. Curly Bonds, who is the Chief Medical Officer for the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. And we're just really thrilled that he took the time to be here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: All right, well, welcome. Uh, so let's just uh, talk a, a little bit about like your role and, and how the the scope of your of the Department of Mental Health and kind of services. You know, I, I just it, I just really wanted to talk to you because as a Los Angeles resident um, for the last couple of years, it seems like you know the homelessness situation is exacerbating and uh, people who come here can't, when they've moved away and they come back, they really can't believe like how bad it is. And it's just sad. And I, there's many reasons, mental illness is just one component of homelessness. A lot of people attribute it to like everybody on the street is mentally ill. And I I don't believe that for a minute. I think, you know, a lot of people are really close to being (laughs) on the streets, just a few paychecks away. So we, we want to just talk about the scope of your job and your responsibilities and
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for that acknowledgement. It, it is a big job, but I have to say, I, I do not do this work alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many others that I'll mention throughout this conversation who definitely play a big role, in some cases, bigger roles than I do. I'm the chief medical officer. So my primary job is that I oversee sort of the standards of care for clinic, clinical care. And we have a lot of different disciplines, everything ranging from psychologists to social workers, um, marriage and family therapists, We also have a lot of psychiatrists. I oversee that group specifically as the de facto um, medical director and physician in chief. But I also work a lot with nurses, nurse practitioners, clinical pharmacists. We probably have every category of health professional that you can think of. And one of the most important groups that's been sort of recently emerging are peers. Those people that come to this uh, job with lived experience, often themselves having been in treatment for, for or recovering from a mental illness. And now they're a legitimate part of the workforce. In fact, we can, as of a new state law bill for their services. So we're really excited about having them be a part of our treatment team. The Work itself is large. I mean, Los Angeles County is one of the largest counties in the United States. We have, I think over 4,000 square feet, um, or square miles, sorry. And we're bigger, I think, if you add it up than the states of Delaware and Rhode Island combined. So we're, well, we're huge, and that ranges from the high desert up in the Antelope Valley, all the way out to Catalina Island. Those are all a part of our catchment area. So we have eight different service areas, service planning areas they're called, or spas and we have clinics in each of those locations. We have a total of about 85 directly operated programs. Those are programs that the department itself administers but then we have contracts with a lot of what we call legal entity providers. These are agencies that are often nonprofits. Some of them are quite large. Some of them are really small, the kind of startups, including a few individuals who register with us to provide services as vendors. So we, we again, I don't do this work alone. But there are about 250 positions for psychiatry, and it seems that it's growing you pointed out that the epidemic of homelessness is growing. And I think LA County, unfortunately, is sort of the world's capital for this. Even those of us who've traveled to less fortunate countries in terms of resources realize that it's not a right here to have housing like it is in many other places. So uh, if you look at estimates, though, um, only about maybe a third or a little above that of those folks that are unhoused suffer from serious mental illness. Now, not to say that Everybody who's on the street doesn't have some problems with mood or anxiety, just that struggle day-to-day of adjustment and trauma. I would say it's hard to not have some symptoms, but in terms of a diagnosed formal psychiatric disorder, it's really anywhere from maybe 25 to 35%, depending on whose study you believe and, and how things are counted. So I'll I'll pause there. And I I guess, you know, the other thing I often point out is that we have over 6,000 employees and we have a director, Dr. Lisa Wong, who is a, a psychologist who's been at the helm now a little over a year, and she's doing a fantastic job. She's been with the department starting when she was a student for over 30 years. So she knows all the nooks and crannies of the department. And she also knows how to operate not only within the department, but at that higher political level. A lot of what we do is related to directives that come from the board of supervisors sometimes from the state or even the governor um, recently sort of threw his hat in the ring about how mental health services should be funded financed and even it'll affect delivery on some level so we we do a lot Um, we also have a chief deputy connie draxler our interim chief deputy who does a lot of the administrative components the things like budgets finance Um, a lot of the things that people think of as being mundane, but these tasks, you know, they say no money, no mission. So if you don't manage the the books properly, then you'll be out of business. So she does that work along with her team.
0: Wow. Well, so many of those programs, this is all new information because I guess, you know, you're the first person I've ever spoken with from your department. And I'm thinking all psychologists and all of these other divisions and nurses and doctors, so many other, all these people, like you said, running the show. Um, I wanted, you just mentioned something that stood out that I've never heard of before is that lived experience experts can be on your payroll now. Is it, absolutely.
1: Right? Well, oh. sure. You're, you're absolutely right. And um, I think of them as being important members of the, the recovery team. If you think about it, I'm a doctor, You know, I've been in school for a lot of my life. I, I haven't necessarily spent time um, on the streets in a tent or in jail inside of a cell. So if, if I have that experience, I'm probably gonna relate to it a lot differently than someone who spent their life so-called in the ivory tower. Now I, I have spent a lot of time working alongside some of these environments, but having been there yourself having been in a clinic where you're respected or not respected, Knowing how to communicate with the physician, knowing what language a person will understand, because I can admit that I get a little distant sometimes. And I have to find myself not using jargon, but peers, they often break it down. They're the ones who, in my mind, are the true heroes. We have these positions that are community health workers that require very little formal education. I think sometimes a high school diploma may be the minimum requirement, but what we're really looking for are those people that know how to relate to different cultural groups, different ethnic, different religious, um, people with different identities. Those are the folks that we try to find because they can match, I think, very symmetrically with the folks that we're providing services for. And they often have insights as to what will work. You know, how do you approach someone who's been living on the street, who's paranoid of anybody who's wearing an ID badge? I, I think that they help fill that gap.
0: Wow. Well, uh, my my partner, the creator of the show, Rick Kilpack, he he lives in Park City, Utah. But for he did about uh, two years with a uh, crisis response team, so they were called in with the police to do exactly what you're talking about. He he would be considered a lived experience. He's he's been struggling with bipolar for the last forty years, but he he's explained to me, you know, how much more calming it can be that people yeah do get pretty scared when people show up with when the uniform or can be. Um you, there's so many things to talk about, so I'll, I'll I might end up jumping around, but you, just from listening to prior chats you've had with people, you really want to emphasize uh, you have a lot a big emphasis on recovery, that this is a recovery as a journey journey and not a destination. if you want to elaborate on that a little bit.
1: Sure. So think about um, Packing a bag to go somewhere. And in life, we're all involved in some destinational quest. And just getting there can be half the fun. You know, I would say that going someplace on vacation, getting there is just the beginning. Then you're going to explore, you're going to go around. With illness, we think about illnesses like uh, breast cancer or, say, heart disease, that you may get to a point where you can function. But the illness isn't necessarily gone. You know, with, with cancer, we always worry about recurrence. With things like heart disease or diabetes, these are kind of chronic conditions that stay with us, but they're manageable. You can take medication. You can be involved in rehabilitative therapies, but you can still function. It's not like you just sit around waiting for the cure, although there are some interventions that can lead towards a great deal of life improvement, they have to be managed on an ongoing basis. So I think of recovery as being something that, you know, you don't take this pill, go to this therapy, and then all of a sudden you're better and you don't have to see us anymore. Hopefully over time you become more independent. And sort of self-management of your symptoms and controlling your illness that most of the people that I know, if they're involved in treatment that's successful, they develop more skills and so they can master their illness. You you mentioned um, someone with bipolar illness. I happen to have a close family member who's diagnosed with bipolar illness. And over time, discovering that sleep is really important to me. I need to get my full solid night's sleep or else I'll have bad symptoms and You know mood swings that come as a result of it knowing that I need to take medication not just sometimes but all the time on an ongoing basis these are sort of life lessons that along that recovery journey you you will you will figure out um it helps to have supporters that's why I think friends and family members spouses partners Uh, are so important because if you try to do this alone, it's a really long journey. But if you have some helpers along the way, they're like um, guide guardrails to keep you on the path towards recovery and to realize that it's not like I've gotten there, I can stop doing all these things. I've got to kind of maintain it over time.
0: Um, I forgot to ask uh, in the intro, uh, are are your services available, are these for uh, people that have insurance, or mostly people that don't, MediCal, who people who like I have Kaiser. So if I something goes on, I, I or I need help, I go to Kaiser. It's an HMO. And people with PPOs, like if somebody out there doesn't know the difference, PPO is it means you can choose doctors outside of your network. So how about the re, who can utilize these all these different programs and services from the Department of Mental Health?
1: That's a great question. And I I wish I had a very simple answer. I'll try to tell you that um, if you call us up at our access number, which is 1-800-854-7771, that's our number for access, they will do an assessment with you. If it turns out that you're having an emergency like a mental health crisis maybe you or a loved one is thinking about taking your own life or in the middle of a psychotic episode where you need to have like maybe hospitalization we provide those services across the board just like the fire department we don't ask you about your insurance before we'll send out a mobile response team to help you so the crisis services are for the entire population of L.A. County. We also do a lot of prevention and early intervention. These are programs that are based in schools. Uh, A lot of the public service advertisements that you see about our events, some of them, I think at one point it was called Take Action for Mental Health or We Rise. Those are campaigns about mental well-being and awareness and stigma reduction. Those are for the entire population. But the core of our services, which are outpatient clinics and programs for those people that are in institutions, those are mainly for the safety net people that are underinsured or uninsured. So, a large part of the population now has um, Medicare or Medi Cal. Older folks typically have Medicare. Younger folks, if they have illness, are covered by Medi Cal if they're indigent. So, if you fall into that category, then we are your provider of, of choice in most cases. Now, the interesting thing is that with uh, healthcare reform and the Affordable Care Act, Almost everybody now qualifies for some form of insurance, and then you have some selections. You can choose, for example, there are people with Medi-Cal who choose Kaiser as their provider. And most of the managed care companies have an element of mental health care delivery for what's called mild to moderate illness. So when you call up, it can be a little tricky. We'll ask about whether or not you have insurance coverage, and then we'll make a determination, are you eligible to receive services with the Department of Mental Health directly? Could you go to one of our contracted agencies. But if you have something like Anthem Blue Cross or one of the blues, chances are that you'd be referred to them as a primary care provider. And then if you have certain types of illness like Kaiser, they only do mild to moderate illnesses, which are like mostly anxiety, mild depression. But if it's serious things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, then they're going to say, you know, that falls into the specialty mental health category, and for that, the department is possibly your provider um, that you're going to be referred to. So it does depend a little bit on what plan you have and, and how you're enrolled. It's a complicated, more complicated than it needs to be because we just in this country don't have a single payer system yet.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I am. At first I was very resistant being a chiropractor, you know, for the last 23 years of a single payer system, but as the years have gone by and just, uh, seeing so many people be have access to, to care now through Covered California, it's income dependent. So if you make very little, and I just love it. There's still a private system for those people that are totally resistant, but I, I'm grateful for it every day and to see Covered California, here at least here. I don't know about the rest of the country, but um, it seems I've been on the website and I'm on a plan now. It's very similar to what I had, but um, things changed during COVID. So I'm just, I'm very grateful to see it implemented. Oh. Um, right, I'd I mean, probably, there
1: are certain things that California does well. That's one of them, I think.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about your background. I know you've had a, a pretty varied background, but I guess like for this conversation, I'd like, I know at one point you worked in the jail system for a few years as a psychiatrist and I'd lo- And you, you brought up some things I'd really like to hear more about that people don't think about because there are a lot of people, hopefully most people are going to get out of jail at some point and there's so many services that they're going to need. Uh, so, so if you want to talk about some of the things that you are responsible for and, and or implemented for these people. It's a big population, but I'd like to talk about what you did when you were working in the jail systems and things that, uh, that you are aware of.
1: Okay. Well, um, I think a first starting point for this conversation is to realize that there are three health departments in Los Angeles County. There's mental health, which is the department I work for, and there's physical health, which is the Department of Health Services, which takes care of inpatient psychiatry. They also take care of emergency psychiatry, and they also do correctional mental health, which is the jail. At the time that I worked in the jail, which was from 2007 to 2010, roughly, it was under the Department of Mental Health in terms of the healthcare and mental, mental health care within the jail. Now it's under correctional health under the Department of Health Services. So my knowledge is a little bit dated, but I think some of the basic principles remain the same. Um, the third health department is public health, by the way, and they have substance use disorders under a component called SAPSI, Substance Abuse Prevention and Control. So if we focus on what happens in the jail, generally speaking, jail is a short-term uh, destination compared to prison, which is more longer term. A lot of people don't know this. I I used to get into conversations socially when people found out I worked at jail and later they say prison, I say, oh no, no. Um, (laughs) Prison is for more serious crimes like felonies, murders, rapes, um, assault with a deadly weapon. I mean, those people are more likely to be accused of felonies and they're gonna end up serving more than a year in prison. But usually terms in jail are intended to be a year or less. So one thing to keep in mind is that people are in the jail for just a short period. Often it's kind of a revolving door. People go in, they stay for a few weeks or months, they serve a part of their sentence. I think right now it's down to about 50% of the time that you're charged with. So if, say, you're assigned a three-month sentence, you might only be there for four to six weeks. So you have a limited amount of time to intervene. So a big focus is on identifying those people that have mental health problems, and that happens at time of intake. Um, There is something that they refer to as the Inmate Reception Center, which sounds a lot more glamorous than it is. You know, they're not handing out (laughs) cupcakes at the door or tea sandwiches, but it's a reception in that you come in, you fill out a questionnaire. At the time that I worked there, I think it had somewhere around 15 to 17 questions. Those ask about previous mental health history, treatment, are you taking medications? And of course, things like, are you feeling suicidal now? Those people that get identified as either being having a history of mental health problems or active symptoms, they get referred to triage with a mental health clinician. And then there's a determination that's made, will you go into general population or into specially mental health housing? Those individuals who are thought to be more vulnerable because of their illness or symptoms, like say they might be taken advantage of, those folks are generally sent to mental health housing. Um, there's some other specialty populations too, like those folks who are very violent, You know, they're separated out. Um, the LGBT population in jail is separated out. But the purpose of jail mental health is really to stabilize and prepare for reentry or discharge. In fact, discharge and reentry planning starts on day one. When someone first shows up, you start thinking about where is this person gonna go? And generally that's a function of where did they come from and where do they wanna be? So you try to link them to services both in the jail to give them medication, support. There are some groups. um, There's probably not as much rehabilitation as I would like to see. At the time, there were some outside groups that went through and did some internal jail reach, like Homeboys is one, for example, that did a lot of work with people that had been previously involved in gangs. And they also have a great um, educational and I would say occupational program for once people get released. But those focus, the focus of that work is really to help people not get back into jail again. You know, it's about reducing recidivism. And now on the mental health side, working as a, a medical director, I know that people that come out need to have services in the community. So we have two programs that are growing. One is larger it's the women's reentry program. And we have a men's reentry program. Both at this point have more than one location but it's for someone who comes out of jail, they might need help with housing, with benefits reestablishment, because unfortunately, all of your benefits and entitlements get stopped once you're in jail, because the department um, doesn't want you to double dip. You know, you shouldn't be getting paid by the county and also by the sheriff's department while you're incarcerated there. So I think that's the big picture is that it's about recovery and reentry. very
0: happy. Once in a while, I see a 60 Minutes uh, Segment where they're talking about different education programs in the jail and training. And they're controversial because some people don't like to see that at all. And I I do, I I think we all deserve second yeah. chances. And if you come out and have no job skills or a way to... And then you also mentioned like, um, I don't know if it was anger management, but learning how to have difficult conversations so you don't explode. You know, we all have difficult conversations in our life, whether it's family member or... A job, or just being out in public, and you know, with the stress, and um, some I, I had a roommate in Hawaii who used to call them "snapperhead." So I'm. Hoping well, you've mentioned how the, I guess it just kind of touches on what you were talking about. the The jails have kind of become the de facto psychiatric hospitals. If our jails are crowded, or people are just, or they're sent there, they're taken there, and that there needs to be well, we're gonna, we need to in, in, implement more programs or training so they're not taken to jail. Is that that something that you're involved with now or or different departments?
1: Yes, I I would say that what we now call um, alternatives to incarceration, it's about catching people so that they don't wind up in jail. Um, A lot of it has to do with our crisis response. For example, now 988 is the general number that you can dial when you're having an emergency out in the community. But what I saw when I worked in the jail was that depending on where you were identified and picked up for some criminal behavior, the lens that is put through would often be a reflection of what you looked like. Um, If you were a person of color, for example, or if you were from a um, a not such great neighborhood or picked up in an area that has high crime, the assumption is, oh, this is a criminal, this is criminal behavior, they're resisting, and we need to take them off to jail, and we book them. But if you're maybe in a more well healed community and Um, you look more professional, um, you look more mainstream, then you're behaving oddly and erratically. Oh, this is a medical emergency. It's a mental health problem. So you get taken to a psychiatric emergency room. And of course, they run your numbers. If you have ID and they run a rap sheet and you've got a previous arrest and an incarceration, then they're going to say, oh, this is just criminal behavior. doesn't automatically have your mental health history. That's confidential. So a lot of times the what we call wallet biopsy would determine where you'd go in terms oh, the wallet, of what you call um, the wallet
0: would you call it the wallet, wallet biopsy oh i like that biopsy.
1: yeah <laughs> well it's something that in medicine is discussed in terms of emergency services do you get admitted to the hospital or do we send you home with stitches and a lot of times it was about what type of coverage you have and so i think in some ways when they do the biopsy of like what your resources are if you're going to be able to have a family member call a lawyer to get you out, then you don't spend much time in jail, as opposed to those who don't have those types of resources or access or knowledge as a part of it, too. So um, the whole point, I think, that we're talking about is how do you end up getting into jail? And I think one of the things we preliminarily discussed is this right to constitutional treatment when you're incarcerated. That is not true. You know, if I'm at the corner of Pico and La Brea and I'm yelling and screaming and I'm, you know, half naked and throwing things at cars, it's like, okay, that person's mentally ill maybe, but they're also creating a violent crime, so we need to take them to jail. Once I'm in jail, it's cruel and unusual punishment by our constitution to not treat me. If I'm just out there and I don't violate any laws, and I'm behaving erratically or I have a mental illness, there's no law that says I'm entitled to mental health treatment, which is why some people, they only get treatment when they're incarcerated. And it's also a voluntary treatment system too, which complicates things a bit further. Until someone does something to threaten themselves or others, it's often the case that they just, they don't come to treatment. Um, But yes, so it's it's a really kind of a unfortunate societal ill that, we have a lot of issues out there, like substance use, um, criminal behavior that result in people getting incarcerated as opposed to getting treatment.
0: Um, thank you for explaining that. So much good information I was not aware um, of. I, I, one thing that uh, it seems to be an issue now is that we there's definitely a shortage of therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists to help with the, the the increase in demand of people who need help, we have a kind of a mental health crisis. It seems like here in the U.S., weekly ma- to me, just the fact that we have weekly mass shootings, you know, say no more. We we need there's something we need help. But um, as you brought up in some of your prior interviews that I've listened to, only about two to four percent of uh, doctors out there are people of color. So I'd like, and and you mentioned, and, you know, and I know as, from having gone to chiropractor school. Most people, if you're not aware out there listening to our listeners, by the time you finish, a lot of people just look at doctors and lawyers, think, oh, they're all rich; they make a lot of money. Well, most people come out of medical school unless their parents were wealthy and paying for it, or they got a scholarship. They're going to owe about two to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So at this point, it's so cost prohibitive that not many people are even going into the medical field so and that there's like other institutional barriers that that they're helping to break down so if you want to talk about some of those and things that you'd like to see done to help with the shortage of of well
1: thank you for recognizing this i i think that one of the biggest barriers like you pointed out is having resources to start with and one of the reasons why there is a dearth of i would say black and latinx providers is that if you start out with limited resources and you have a big family debt or big personal debt, you need to make money. Um, mental health fields are not the most um, reimbursable. You can go to this website, Transparent California, look up your favorite doctor who works for the public system, and you can find out like what the salaries are and the neurosurgeons and the orthopedics, the people that do interventional work, um, often make upwards of half a million or a million a year, whereas psychiatry is probably about half that. Um, it's not a field that people go into because they're trying to line their pockets. They mostly do it out of a sense of social justice and and wanting to help people. Um, and then there are others who just have that work where they, they like working with people, talking to them. My preference is that my patients be awake when I work with them, not asleep <laughs> sleep or under anesthesia. So, but you know, that that's not the same as if I were drilling holes in their head, then I'd be cool. paying a lot more because it's higher risk. And, you know, so I, I admit that surgeons go through a longer period of training, but there are disparities in compensation. Also, there's stigma. I think in the minority communities, often there's this sense that Uh, Why aren't you going to be a real doctor? I, I, I was fortunate. I didn't hear that from my family, probably because my family has a fair number of individuals with lived experience, so to speak. You know, they knew the value of mental health treatment because people had experienced it firsthand. But for a lot of other people, it's hard for them to get acknowledgement that medicine and mental health go hand in hand. So the answers really start, I would say, in primary school. Um, I do work with one university, Charles Drew in South LA that has a tradition of something called the Saturday Science Academy, where middle school and high school students are brought onto campus. It's a medical campus that has all the health professions there where they're allowed to engage in different projects and programs where they learn about um, how do you become a health professional, not necessarily a doctor, but even things like radiation technology. There are other specialties that people can go into. Um, so it's exposing them early on because often it's about who you are exposed to. I know that for me in college, I went to a a university that had a large pre-medical presence. It was on a campus that was right next to a large teaching hospital. So going to lunch as a college undergraduate, you saw the interns and residents and the doctors floating around. I mean, they were in the environment. You could talk to them. So you got exposed to those things. Not everybody has that experience. So a lot of it is about early life experience and exposure
0: what do you think? Let's talk about some of the, the biggest challenges your, depart, your department has, like the c- contemporary mental health challenges. You know, as, as a citizen of LA, I, I started out, I mentioned this earlier, you know, when I get off the freeway, I live in Studio City, so I'm between two freeway overpasses. So every night, but as I start the day and end the day, if it's, if it's extreme weather, if it's really wet or really hot, I'm going to see a homeless encampment. And it feels, I feel kind of helpless. Like, what can I do? Like just being a, you know, I I, I guess voting, voting is huge, but I think a lot of people wonder what, what can we do? The average person other than voting, like, I know that when we <laughs> Our mayor and our governor will every per- periodically we'll see like a whole, uh, a new low income housing uh, project coming up, and I think I just saw one a couple nights ago. I saw Karen Bass. I, I forget where it was, but there was a new like tiny homes, and and I'm I'm such a huge fan of those. Uh, it doesn't have to be a, a huge place; just get some shelter with clean water and plumbing. But it it feels like uh, Dr. Bonds, no matter where they want to build these, that there's this huge resistance, whether it's the West Side, North Hollywood, uh, Koreatown, there's, you know, people out there marching, not in this neighborhood. So, well, it seems like it's just a daunting, what do you do? So I'd like to hear about what you feel are the biggest challenges uh, or the modern day contemporary problems.
1: Wow, that's that's sort of a that's a podcast or discussion all in itself. I know, what I, I was part with is saying that, in terms of wanting to do something, wanting to be involved, and in knowing where you can make the biggest impact, you first have to find your passion. You know, you've mentioned the unhoused a few times and getting people off the streets, or maybe it's helping people get into recovery from substance abuse. Pick something, it doesn't matter. Maybe it's because of a neighbor, a friend, or maybe it is that person who you see next to your driveway every morning, you know, shivering in a tent. then it's becoming educated in the same way that during the era of Black Lives Matter, you know, a couple of years back, everybody was recommending their favorite book. I think for me, it's about reading the newspaper, staying well-informed, knowing what is happening locally. There are certain organizations around that I'm hesitant to say names because I don't want to elevate one above the other, but they do work in community spaces. Um, I know, for example, I'm very involved right now in a project in Hollywood It's called Hollywood 2.0, and it's really supported by um, an agency, um, Hollywood Board four walls, a roof, and a door. And they've long been involved in Hollywood and the homeless situation there as it relates to mentally ill folks. So the department has an effort that we partner with them. We partner with other providers in the community that all offer volunteer opportunities. But before you go diving in, I think you need to understand the scope of the problem so that you can make the biggest impact. But... Voting is great, but I would also say you can vote with your dollars. Uh, the holiday season is coming up. Giving Tuesday, you'll see a lot of agencies asking for your hard-earned dollars. It's a tax deduction. How can you support them if you can't go out and, say, volunteer at a soup kitchen or at a homeless shelter? That's that's not for everybody. You can certainly support them by giving them financial resources to help um, those who are less fortunate. In terms of our department, the biggest things that we face, we've kind of touched on, The unhoused population, there is something that's coming up on uh, the March ballot in 2024 called Proposition 1 that is a revision of the Mental Health Services Act. Right now, anyone who's fortunate enough to make over a million dollars in the state of California pays 1% of their income towards mental health services. Our governor has determined that it should be behavioral health services, so it will help fund not only mental health, but substance use and substance disorders. As well as un- the unhoused, a third of the dollars that come in would go to help people be housed. Now, we have some concerns about that as a department because it may help us um, get more people housed, but we might have to trim back in other spaces uh-huh. if this money is a limited pool. So, knowing about that. There's also care court, which is going to help people that have serious illness, like psychotic illnesses who refuse treatment to get them maybe to the place where they might accept treatment to have a more intense wraparound service for them. So there are all these different initiatives that are floating about. It's, it's hard to know where to hang your hat, but I would say to narrow it down so that you don't get overwhelmed, just pick one or two, get really involved, talk to people. Social media, um, I, I sometimes will go on to next door and I read things that sort of basically disparage folks with mental health problems and I will try to be that voice to say that's an illness people need help you know don't just um, tell them about how awful they are but maybe help them to get to help being able to report things to the authorities so that they get help as opposed to getting arrested.
0: Um, I want to kind of pivot another direction um, because some of the things I heard you discussing that you're a big fan of meditation and and physical fitness because um i just want to chat about that for a minute uh dr Bonds, because i go to a lot of especially working on trying to sell a show about mental health and uh, and brain health um and it's never brought up the role of exercise i was at something last may like a two-day uh here in la um it was it was great, but I, I left there after two full days thinking not not a single person mentioned the role of exercise and nutrition. And uh, I watch a lot of things and nobody does. And I think it's really important. Certainly, I think there's people that need medicine, but I'm wondering why. And I I do, I wanna hear your thoughts on that because you've mentioned that you practice meditation and I, I've seen things on TV um, on 60 Minutes. And, and other shows, front, I think it's called Frontline, where they talk about how they're using meditation in prisons now. I'll I'll try to get hold of somebody in the prison system, but I've certainly seen things where they were in schools where they implemented meditation and in lieu of de- the traditional detention, like just go sit in a corner, you know, that the reticism rate is decreased significantly, teaching mindfulness and Kids from a very early age, so I'm I'm just a big fan. I want to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Well, wow, well, you've tossed a lot out. I'll try it's to right. break it down a bit. Okay. So, um, I am a big fan of two things that you mentioned: both meditation and physical activity. Um, there are probably economic reasons why these things aren't talked about, not because they're not effective, but because they don't have like large pharma companies with big budgets posting ads on billboards and TV commercials at late night shows. I know if you watch late night TV, it seems like every other, every other commercial is either about some mental health problem or some type of dysfunction. Right. Um, so the reality is that that's because, you know, the big drug companies, they have money uh, is flowing through. Whereas meditation is low tech. Doesn't cost anything. Sure, you can download an app, and you can pay a subscription. But for the most part, meditation is something that once you learn it, it's a skill that you take with me, with you. It doesn't require a subscription. Doesn't require refills, and it's not as. Ev- ev- involved as one thing. You know, I used to always think, oh, I need to have a, a flowing um, tan and go to an ashram and I need to have the perfect <laughs> situation. You know, I need to be able to sit in a pretzel-like pose, but no, meditation can be done quietly while you sit. In fact, one of my favorite meditations is a walking meditation. I, I do use a meditation app that, um, sort of has a few teachers that guide you through things, but it's about mindfulness and being aware of nature, which is one of the best healers, just paying attention to the sounds, the sights, um, everything around you and just taking it all in for five minutes, that walking meditation, making you aware of your feet touching the ground, uh, making you aware of your breathing. Those are all things that help to be an antidote to what I think of as urban life stress. Uh, We go through a lot of activation, You know, our bodies have cortisol levels that are all over the place because we're constantly being um, prodded and nudged. I mean, our devices have these reminders and prompts and notifications. Turning all that down and just sort of focusing on the inner purpose, inner self, is super important. So that's meditation. I'm giving all of this short shrift, but we only have a limited amount of time. The other part is exercise. You know, yes, there is a gym industry, but the type of exercise that benefits you most is just walking, swimming, jogging. You know, if you can get out into nature, you don't need to have fancy equipment other than a pair of running shoes and maybe some comfortable workout clothes. You can do exercise. The minimum recommended amount is 30 minutes three times per week. Um, It reduces stress, helps with weight management, um, improves response to sugar so that things like metabolic syndrome don't happen as much. It can increase your interest in sex and even your performance if that's an issue for you, your endurance. So I think there are a lot of benefits to exercise. And I've occasionally written prescriptions to people to get some exercise three times a week. And the reality is, is that it's 1.5 times more effective than any therapy or medication that I could administer. And it as at a fraction of the cost, almost nothing. Of course, if you do have the resources to get fancier and join a nice um, gym or club, do that. Be social because I think that element of social component to group exercise is very important you can start a walking group. I've had a few elder adult patients who do that in their neighborhood and that way their accountability to other people comes as a part of the exercise and it's a social component, a social sharing component. Um, So, I mean, there's so many benefits to, to doing it, but again, I think it's been under recognized by the medical community. The other area I think we fall short is nutrition. There are plenty of people out there who know a lot more about it than I do, but your five fruits and vegetables a day Five days a week is really, really beneficial to your digestion, your well being, your mood. These are sort of um, things that aren't rocket science, they, they're just common everyday knowledge, but we need to go back to these basics sometimes for, for overall well being.
0: Thank you. I just, yeah, I, I just wonder, I, I follow a lot of different medical professionals on Instagram and social media. And, you know, everyone now, because it's, we're just in, heading into winter, everybody mentions, get your flu shot, get your COVID booster. And I guess I, I just want to like shake the, shake the computer and say, well, why aren't you mentioning like, like all the things you just said too, as on top of those things, if you are a fan of the flu shot or at least why don't they mention these and get outside and eat some foods that strengthen your immune system to to ward some of this off. And I love that you mentioned the social component. I I know that there's so many people now not wanting to return to the office and I've been working from home for the last year and a half. I I was a chiropractor in Hollywood at Raleigh studios but I had to leave because Netflix and I, it was kind of on the fence about moving to Hawaii, so I didn't go get another office. But um, I don't love working from home. I, I love people, most people. <laughs> I love seeing people. I'm, thankfully, the gym, I'm there every day, but I, I can't even relate to the, these people that wanna work from home, like, and never leave. You know, I, I mean, it has its advantages, but I would, I for me, I'd miss the social component of, of seeing and interacting with people, very much so. <laughs>
1: i absolutely agree in fact what we've seen with our staff is while there is a great demand for what we call hybrid work meaning that you spend some time remotely and some time in the office that a lot of our clients or patients because of who they are we may be their only human contact and so i feel like to do that through a computer screen or in some cases just over the telephone is really insufficient and you can miss things i mean we need to do eyes on, and in a few cases, hands on evaluation, even as a psychiatrist, in order to assess you for certain types of medication side effects, I need to do a modified physical exam where I check for stiffness, tremors, rigidity, that can't be done through a computer screen, monitoring blood pressure, some of our medications have side effects, getting labs done, there are things that people need to come in for, but I think there's also our doctors, about 35% have reported a sense of disconnectedness from their peers, and I, I attribute that to the fact that we've basically allowed them out of convenience to do everything remotely, including our team meetings. So for the holidays, I've kind of made this mandate, which is mostly popular. There have been a few complainers that say (laughs) we need to get together for a holiday get together. We're going to take a picture because it's been almost three years since we've had one in person. And as we've grown and as more people have been added to our fold, I think there's this sense of disconnectedness from the folks in the department as a whole. And we are large, but we now have a space where we can accommodate everyone in our new headquarters. So we're going to try to bring them together. And I think it's a, a message that we need each other. We need to be around people. I don't think we were built to to be in isolation.
0: I don't. And, and I strongly believe I, I know it was such a, a, a mixed kind of feeling during COVID. My mother, um, it was it used to be in two groups uh prior to covid one called the red hat group that's older women and they dress in red and purple and go out and have social functions but she had so much fun and a friendship connection she lived up in ventura and all of that stopped and um they were even though she had a house full of people cuz we had caregivers and i was there a lot um She was so lonely and so many, there were so many people who, I I really feel a lot of people passed of loneliness, at least our elderly population that didn't have the social support. They didn't have the tech skills. I mean, luckily the younger generations or an older person that had young people in their life, they could set them up on zoom where they felt like they still had a little, but there were a lot of people that just didn't have any of that. And, um, I, on that note, does your department, are there a lot of seniors that are served uh, are there any kind of programs geared at seniors? Yes, there are.
1: We, in fact, uh, we have one division called Genesis, which is um, an acronym that I can't remember what it stands for, but it's older adult services. They do a lot of field-based work for folks that are shut-ins or homebound, and it's, it's almost all older adults. I think the minimum age is 55 which scares me a little because (laughs) i don't want to qualify but um, it's good to know that i could get them if i needed them but most of them are people that you know their sixth and seventh decade of life or above so we have a a fairly robust service one of the things they do a lot of is working with folks who have hoarding as a problem because a lot of times that becomes most severe in late life when you've had a lot of time to accumulate things it can be actually dangerous so they, they do a lot of great work. And they also do some legal advocacy because that group is subject to being um, preyed upon by Freud's, fraudsters and that sort of thing.
0: Oh, well, it's good to hear you have these great yeah, programs. We,
1: we, we have a We have a faith-based uh, initiative where, at one point, I know we were doing breakfast with local pastors because a lot of times, that's where people go when they first start help seeking. They will go to a spiritual or religious leader before they will come to a therapist or a doctor. And I think there are even initiatives, one of our um, communities that's a stakeholder community is a faith-based community. So we can connect maybe offline after this and I can put you in touch with the person who oversees that.
0: I would love that. Uh, Cause I, Rick and me, we're Christian, but we want we want the show to be represented every rep of all faiths. But I know that many, many people that have thought about suicide, uh, it's their faith or their spiritual believing in a higher that it's a sin or it, it, their faith helps them to to make it through those really difficult times and and that final decision so I, th- I think it's just an important part of the the show so um thank you again for being here today thank you and i hope to see, to see you in person all right have a good uh, rest of the week
1: my pleasure and holidays. you take care
0: thanks everybody for joining us for another episode of american mood swings where we talk about the brain and all things mental health hope to see you next week and please share with your friends